0: David Fiorazzo.
1: Hello, brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you for tuning in. And uh, we are so blessed to be here another day and not be kicked off the air, not having our server hacked, not being deleted completely on social media. We still have a voice to some extent. So we're blessed by that. We appreciate the freedoms we have in this country and the opportunity we have for now to share the gospel. That's in part what we're going to talk about today when we talk about voting, reasons why we vote. There's a lot of biblical issues, and um, we'll get to that in a minute. But I want to bring Andy Woods in. He's just back from Israel, a trip over to the Holy Land. Of course, he's pastor and teacher, Sugarland Bible Church in Texas, president of Chafer Theological Seminary, and he's got many great books. The recent one, Babylon, the Bookends of Prophetic History. Um, The coming kingdom falling away, ever reforming, and the Middle East meltdown. Andy, welcome back to the podcast, brother. David, great to be here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, well, you're going to, on your pastor's point of view, you're going to be talking about a very important subject today, and that is biblical voting issues. And, you know, we hear often Christians need to vote their biblical worldview, vote biblically. But what does that mean? So we're going to talk about that in a few minutes, but first we can't Move on before we ask you about your Israel trip, and can you give us a couple bullet points, a couple highlights?
2: Yeah, I was one of the co-teachers on the trip. I went with uh, someone you know that you you interview regularly, uh, Bill Perkins of Compass Ministries. He just does a great job of you know the Compass team there organizing these trips. But you know, we started in uh, Rome, Italy visited the Colosseum, uh, the Titus Arch, and then from there set sail via cruise to Cyprus, which was um, Paul's, the first place he went to on his first missionary journey. And then from there we go to Galilee, um, cross, you know, we do the whole deal with the, uh, you know, teaching on the Sea of Galilee and, you know, crossing the Sea of Galilee. Then from there we go to Jerusalem. Visit places like the Temple Institute, where they're planning on building the third temple, which is very significant prophetically. And, uh, you know, go to the Temple Mount and a lot of, you know, the Garden Tomb, where, you know, there's an argument to be made that, you know, that could very well be Christ's tomb. I mean, we we don't know for sure, but it sure presents a plausible scenario. And then from there we set sail, and we went to um, from there to Ephesus. And I'd never been to Ephesus before, so that was probably the part of the trip that was most striking to me. You know, standing on the very uh, the the very Colosseum that's referenced in Acts 19, related to the silversmiths' riot, and the the you know actually doing some teaching on the road um, leading to that Colosseum where the whole events of Acts 19 and the Silversmiths' Riot happened. And, of course, Ephesus is a big deal in terms of the New Testament. And then from there we went to Greece, um, visited Olympia, the advent of the modern-day Olympics. Mm -hmm. And, of course, Paul the Apostle uses so much athletic metaphor, you know, when he's writing to churches in that area. And so suddenly the Bible kind of jumps off the page in terms of why Paul is using, you know, uh, you know we're all we're all going to receive a prize, uh, or we're all competing for a prize, mm-hmm. you know, those kinds of metaphors. And from there we go to Corinth, uh, the Isthmian Land Bridge there in Corinth, the the Bama Seat in Corinth, and from there back to. Back to Rome, where we actually visited, um, Vatican City. Mm. You know, not, wow. not that we're Catholics or anything, but <laughs> it sure is interesting, interesting history. And so it's just one of those trips that I would just encourage people to pray about taking because, you know, it's one thing to study the Bible, it's, that's a wonderful thing. It just takes on another dimension when you're actually there, mm-hmm. you know, where these biblical events happen. Yeah. So. I I count myself as very blessed to be able to go.
1: Well, I'm uh, guessing you've been there many times. And uh, just was there anything on this trip that, I mean, (laughs) to someone with your theological background and you've been preaching for years and you're a student of the Bible, um, is there anything that jumped out at you as a different or something that, wow, here's a new nugget of truth from history? Was there anything that uh, stood out to you? Well, I think what
2: stood out to me is Ephesus. I'd never been to Ephesus. Mm-hmm. I did not know how well-developed Ephesus is in terms of excavations. I didn't realize how big it was, but mm-hmm. they're, they are excavating, you know, everywhere there. And I think one of the things that stood out to me is the fact that we don't, you know, of all of the excavations there, we don't have the church at Ephesus. There's no church at Ephesus there. You know, you would think with all this preserved history, I'd be able to, you know, attend Sunday services at the church at Ephesus, or I could go online and, you know, read about the staff members at the church at (laughs) Ephesus. But the church of Ephesus doesn't exist, and there's a reason for that. Jesus said in Revelation 2, Mm. you know, verses 4 and 5, that because they had left their first love, um, I'm going to come and take away your lampstand. And that's essentially what happened to Ephesus, even though they were such a key church, you know, in the first century world. And so, I don't know, I guess that kind of stood out to me as a warning. Oh,
1: my goodness. That when we
2: get our priorities out of whack, um, I don't think we lose our salvation, but God can remove our sphere of influence as a church. I would sort of argue that that kind of thing's happening right now in the United States. And so I, I just took that as a very severe warning. You know,
1: from yeah. the Lord. Amen, brother. We must not leave our first love, and that wa- and they were warned. Uh, he says, "Remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at, at first. Otherwise, I will remove your lab stand." Um, so they were warned to repent, and obviously, <laughs> there's nothing but you know archaeological you know evidence and the uh, the whatever's left there, the remains at Ephesus. So the church didn't make, it didn't last. So yeah, that's a warning to America. In fact, I think Revelation 2 and 3, all those churches in Asia Minor, there's something we can take away and go, okay, this is for us, <laughs> you know. Um Andy, let's talk about something very important in terms of our nation in America. Uh, we can maybe t- talk a little bit about how we were founded as we don't want to belabor the point a lot of our listeners already know and are well-versed, but um our midterms are coming up. Elections are important. Some Christians uh, have been disillusioned because of the voter fraud and the lack of election integrity across the board and uh, recent issues, especially in 2020. Um, but we still must use that right, privilege, and responsibility to vote and use our impact to into legislation, into um, voting for supporting righteous things, righteous policies. So let's talk about that. You laid out a very uh, extensive list. On what it means to vote biblically so where do you want to start
2: well this comes out of a pastor's point of view that we actually recorded yesterday that is now posted um, on YouTube and rumble etc uh, this morning where I actually sat down with a local you know congressional candidate who has won his primary hmm. and now he's in the general election and he's actually a, a, another a pastor of another church locally here so i was excited to hear about that his name is dr johnny teague and i took him through a list of ten questions uh... related to the bible and biblical issues and i selected these ten because i think they reveal a candidate's biblical worldview if a candidate has a biblical worldview or not and not everybody that claims to be a Christian, you know, in the political process actually holds to a biblical worldview. I mean, we all remember Jimmy Carter, you know, who claimed to be a Christian, and yeah. yet his his governing philosophy was very, in my opinion, very anti-Bible. So, yep. you know, I'm, I'm really interested in anybody I vote for, do they hold to a biblical worldview or not? And so I posed to him ten questions this one on for about an hour. There's maybe three to four minutes. He answers each question. But we sort of wanted to use this as a tutorial, because, mm. you know, anybody out there can take these ten questions and use them. Mm. And I hope other Christians in other parts of the country, no matter who they vote for, for any office, will feel comfortable with their candidate, you know, on these ten issues. And only then can we you know really say we're voting biblically
1: amen brother um it's interesting i thought you know because i have the outline in front of me that uh you didn't start with you know gender or marriage because those are obviously important issues and the bible speaks to those quite a bit and that's what our culture is dealing with some of the confusion and lies but the how the earth experience, experiences cyclical patterns and what does that have to do with the biblical worldview andy
2: well one of the big issues, you know, in our day is what's called anthropogenic climate change. You know, anthropos man, genic where we get the word genesis meaning beginning or cause. And so, you know, what what's happening is our economy is being put in a straitjacket mm. through government regulations. You know, we're told we can't, you know, do domestic oil, you know, production domestic energy exploration, because we're harming the climate, and it's all kind of under the guise of, um, gosh, we must be doing something as human beings to, you know, change the climate. And is that really biblical? I don't Mm -hmm. think that thinking is biblical at all, because when you go to the Noahic Covenant, Genesis 8.22... It says, "While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, mm. you know, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease." And he's describing here four cycles that have nothing to do with human behavior, capitalism, the free market. It has nothing to do with what kind of whether I drive an SUV or not. The, the earth is going to get hot, and it's going to get cold. In fact, we had global warming during the time of the Vikings, (laughs) you know, long before, you know, modern-day capitalism. And And so I think we're actually being deceived into thinking that, gosh, we've got to do something to curtail our activities to stop the earth from getting too cold or getting too hot. God says it's going to do that anyway, regardless of what we do economically. And so I think this is a biblical issue.
1: Yes, thank you. And it is in other ways, because the logical progression of that thinking is man is the problem so yep. population control comes up as an issue that they are pushing whether that be abortion euthanasia somehow limiting the population because man is destroying the planet would that be accurate to say
2: yeah exactly mm-hmm.
1: so let's move on to the next one and um let's talk about government and limited government
2: well this is a question that nobody ever gets asked I mean, I've hardly heard anybody get asked this in the political realm. But I want to know from a candidate, you know, do they believe in any limitations on government? And I've got this quote, I think it's slide number 30 there, by Peter Stark. Mm-hmm, yeah. uh, this was given about 2010, and he was kind of queried at that time, you know, what what role or right does government have in imposing universal health care and he says the federal government this is a direct quote can do almost anything in this country
0: wow
2: close quote and to me that's stunning because that's not a biblical worldview at all because very clearly there are limits on government i mean the apostles in the book of acts chapter five and verse twenty nine says we must obey god rather than man and even going back to the mosaic law Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through 17, God always put the kings under the law, you know. They were not to uh, multiply wealth for themselves, wives for themselves, uh, in terms of polygamy. Um, They were to be a member of the country, or a citizen of the country, just like everybody else, And when you look at our system, it clearly spells out, in our Constitution, limited government. There's only about 20 enumerated powers that Congress can do. Everything else is to be left to the states. Mm -hmm, Our system is built on unalienable or inalienable rights, where the government can't traverse on certain rights we have because they're given by God. So, you know, biblically and constitutionally, the government is limited, and I want to know: do, Does a candidate understand that or not? I'm not going to vote for candidates that believe government can do anything anytime it wants.
1: Wow. Who was it that said um, it, a, a government that's um, uh, a government that's it's strong enough to take away everything you have if they're big enough? I don't remember the exact quote. I think that might have been Reagan. That,
2: yeah, that, that was Gerald Ford. He okay. said, "You know, a government that's big enough to give you everything you want." Yes is also big enough to take everything away. Yeah,
1: there it is, yeah. And so we absolutely agree with states' rights. We agree with limited government. And you're right. That just doesn't seem to be one of the hot debate topics because you rarely ever see it brought up. So um, how are we doing on time, Andy? Do you want to take more time on that one, or should we move on?
2: No, we'll keep moving.
1: Okay, well, let's talk about one of, in my opinion, one of this is a demonic issue, and that would be destroying life of babies, pre-born human babies in mother's wombs, and making it a policy and a platform, um, at least to the Democrats. And this is what Biden even says, hey, if we remain, uh, you know, have the majority in the House or whatever, we're going to codify this as law across the country. So there it is. There it is. He's saying, OK, I'm not worried about limited government. We're going to do this if we maintain majority. So your thoughts as we go into legal protection for the unborn?
2: Well, of course, now this is a big deal since Roe mm-hmm, has been yep. overturned by the Dobbs decision and the the issue of when does life begin is going back to the states, which is where it should have been all along. But now we're actually going to have a discussion about this. So you have to figure out, do candidates favor passing laws to protect the unborn you know, or not? Now, in California, they're not in favor of passing any laws to protect the unborn. You know they're they're actually passing laws promoting infanticide. When you look at what they're doing,
1: mm-hmm. yep.
2: and it's the same in New York. Um, in fact, Governor Newsom there in California is making California an abortion sanctuary state. Mm-hmm. And we have all of these woke corporations, maybe in Texas or Mississippi or Tennessee, where there's you know abortion restrictions, saying, "Hey, we'll." We'll fly you out to California at our expense to get your abortion taken care of. So we've got to figure out: anybody who wants to run for office, do they favor protect you know promoting laws protecting the unborn or not? Obviously, biblically speaking, you know I have in parenthesis there Jeremiah twenty five, excuse me Genesis twenty five verse twenty three, mm-hmm. where God says, you know. Uh, two nations are in your womb speaking of Jacob and Esau so the bible doesn't make any distinction whatsoever between born and unborn and i want to know if a candidate believes that
1: mm-hmm. and
2: if they believe that what are they going to do to protect innocent life in the womb
1: so i'm thinking about so many different quotes uh about our rights uh coming especially from a lot of our founders our rights coming from god Now, they use different language for God and put it in capitals, capital letters. But um, God, rather than our rights, a lot of people believe today come from government. And that's just not the case. We only have two minutes left. Andy, you want to wrap up that thought? No, I mean,
2: that's a perfect example of limited government. You know, either you believe, like uh, John Adams said, rights come from the great legislature of the universe, Mm -hmm. or you believe they come from man If they come from man, then they can be taken away by man. If they come from God, then they can't be taken away by man. So a huge issue for any candidate is do you believe in unalienable rights as expressed in our Declaration of Independence or not?
1: Yes. When we come back with Dr. Andy Woods, we're going to talk a little bit about the Declaration of Independence, and I love more of what um, that quote says that you just alluded to, that um, rights cannot be repealed or cannot be restrained by human laws if they, in fact, are from God. Um, we've got to take a break. We are talking about what it means to vote biblically because we hear that language a lot uh, from so many well-meaning people. Vote your biblical values. Go vote to, you know, to Christians. But I think we need to clarify and define what are biblical values. Are. And we have Scripture to back this up. Thanks to this uh, research and what Dr. Andy Woods has put together. So we'll come back with a lot more, and elections are coming up, friends. We must get active, more active than we've been in the past, if we want to have any success, at least legislatively, in our country.
0: And influence, of course, is important as well. Your monthly financial support of StandUpForTheTruth.com is needed and appreciated. Now, back to today's Stand Up for the Truth with David Fiorazzo.
1: We're with Andy Woods today. You can get much more information and hear some of his teaching at andywoodsministries.org. Um, Andy, before we move on to the next one, and we've, we've got to talk about marriage. I mean, Jesus affirmed it. Um, God created it. You know, he created all things. He created mankind, male, female. Um, he established marriage between one man and one woman. He established the family, the church. Um, So, there's. I just want to get your take real quick on the FBI and the DOJ um, now intimidating pro-lifers. 22 people have been indicted on the pro-life side this year, but yet over 100 cases, over 100 cases of vandalism, um, terrorism, firebombing, pro-life pregnancy centers and or churches, Vandalism. There has not been one single arrest. It is a miscarriage of justice. We did a whole segment on that the other day with Jillian Appling of Wisconsin Family Council. Her offices were firebombed back in May, and they even offered a $5,000 reward for any information. No arrests. So, just your quick thoughts, because we're, we just got done talking about the importance of protecting the unborn. Then, this is a spiritual battle in this country, isn't it?
2: Yeah, well. You know, one of the things the Bible says is the Lord detests, you know, unjust weights and measures. And, you know, when you're going after pro-lifers and you're accusing them of terrorism, you know, or you're going after parents that, you know, give their complaints, doing something very American at a school board meeting, and you call them domestic terrorists, but then you turn a blind eye to actual vandalism yep. and terrorism done by Jane's a group called Jane's Revenge. Of course we remember what BLM did a couple summers ago in terms of actual fires, mm-hmm. and looting. You know, it's just it's it's disgusting. Um, it's a double it's a two-tiered judicial system. Yep. You know, one rule for one group, a different group, a different set of rules for another group and you know, we really You know, if our federal agencies are moving this direction, it's time to clean house. Yes. And it's up to we, the American people, to fix it. And we can a great place to start
1: is November 8th. Yeah, that's another reason to vote, because there does need to be equal justice for all, regardless of your political beliefs, affiliation. So let's move on to the next one. Andy, you've got um, the right to life, legal protection for the unborn, and let's talk about marriage.
2: Well, obviously you want to ask a candidate what their view is on marriage because the Bible, as you already indicated, has a standard on it. Christ quoted in Matthew 19, verses 3 through 6, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, which gives you the divine standard on marriage, which Mm -hmm. is one man for one woman for one life. And the reason this has become such a big deal is what is happening in our culture is they are taking behaviors that are considered biblically sinful, and they're trying to elevate those to civil rights status and make it sound like there's no difference between a homosexual or any member of the LGBTQI, XYZ, whatever community, and you know, being Asian or being black or being Caucasian or being Hispanic. And so basically they're taking a behavior and trying to make it sound like it's some kind of immutable characteristic. And once we go down that road, that puts the Christian on a collision course with the legal system. Take the example of Jack Phillips uh, in Colorado, who refused to bake a cake for a same-sex wedding. Well, he was dragged through the mud. I mean, they basically punished him through the process— he finally got a favorable ruling at the highest level of the United States Supreme Court. Well, now they're doing the whole thing to him all over again. The transgender movement came into his place of a, a business yeah. and demanded that he use his creative talents to produce uh, some kind of transgender cake. Yeah. He always does the same thing. He's very polite. He says, no, here's some other, you know, uh, bakers in the area that could... <laughs> assist you but I can't do it. So they launch some lawsuit against him and they drag him through the mud all over again. I notice they never do this to Islamic bakers who have a position on homosexuality. Interesting. Which is which is much more rigid than the the Christian. I mean the if you're a homosexual in an Islamic country they basically throw you off a you know two or three story building. Mm-hmm. Um, they never bother Muslims about this, but they're always attacking the evangelical Christians. So anybody I vote for for office, I want to know, what's your position on marriage? Are you in favor of taking something that's a biblical perversion and turning it into a civil right? Because if you do that, then it's just a matter of time before the the corrupt FBI or whoever shows up at my church and begins to harass me because I won't marry Mm -hmm. uh, two men or three men or whatever.
1: And that will be a problem if legislation like the Equality Act does get passed by the Democrats. But I think it was Stephen Crowder who years ago, when that Jack Phillips case uh, came on, and Baronel Stutzman up in Washington and so many others, bed and breakfast owners, he actually literally kind of dressed uh, effeminate, went into a Muslim bakery. Actually, a couple different ones. He went into a couple Muslim-owned businesses, bakeries, and asked for a gay wedding cake. And he had a, yes. a friend kind of filming it. I don't know if you ever saw that. But, I did. But the I answer did, was like, yeah. uh, you know, he says, I would like to, a cake for me and my partner for our wedding. And the guy just says, uh, no. <laughs> That's it. That's it. We don't do that here. That's it. That's it. But they, like you said, they don't get sued. But we need to move on, I, I think, and talk a little bit about the Bible and homosexuality, which you have some information on your pastor's point of view on that. And I don't know why this is such a confusing issue to Christians. Maybe we don't recognize the authority of God's Word and the inspiration of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, but can you speak to that for a few minutes, Andy?
2: Well, I think people think we're saying God hates homosexuals, but we're not saying that. Exactly. God loves everybody. And what God hates are is seeing human beings entrapped in sin, which ultimately is going to hurt them, injure them, destroy them. I mean, it's just a matter of looking at the statistics and seeing what the homosexual lifespan is. Yes. Um, what the homosexual, uh, uh, in terms of his, his or her... Um, Uh, acquiring sexually transmitted diseases, what their psychological and emotional state is like, what their suicide rate is like, what domestic violence is like. And although homosexuals probably represent like 1% to 2% of the population, in all of those negative categories that I just articulated, they represent a disproportionate share of suicides, domestic violence, uh, sexually transmitted diseases, depression. And the reason is because the wages of sin is death. Mm -hmm. I mean, when you go out and you live a lifestyle that's directly against the Bible, it's like throwing yourself off a building and saying, well, the law of gravity doesn't apply to me. Uh, You're hurting yourself. Mm -hmm. And so biblically we're against not people, we're against you know behaviors that are going to hurt people yes. and, it, and it's not just homosexuality it's when you look at first Corinthians 6 9 through 11 it's also things related to being a thief uh, being covetous being a drunkard and right in the mix there it mentions homosexuality and Paul says such as some of you were mm-hmm. in the words these behaviors via the power of the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. can be changed and so, so being you know, if you're black or Hispanic or Asian, that's an immutable characteristic. Being a homosexual, etc., is a behavior, and our society is is blending the two.
1: Yeah, uh, I don't want to belabor the point, Andy, but people believers sometimes are still um, they're still unsure how to respond to the accusation. I don't wouldn't call it an accusation, but the claim. That Jesus never said anything about homosexuality, uh, and and I, it just frustrates me because I think of what we just shared from uh, the Gospel of um, um, Luke, what Mark chapter ten, I believe, um, and did Jesus did affirm marriage between one man and one woman. How else do you respond to that when they say Jesus never mentioned homosexuality?
2: Well, I mean, how do they know he didn't? I mean, the the scripture doesn't record everything Jesus did in his life. Um, In fact, John's Gospel tells us in John 21, verse 25, that Mm. there were many other things that Jesus said or did, and John says, I suppose if I told you everything he said or did, the world itself couldn't contain the books written thereof. So it's basically what you call an argument from silence, because we don't have anything in the biblical record concerning Christ speaking directly against something, I guess, He's in favor of it. That's like saying, you know, Jesus never condemned freebasing cocaine. So I guess, you know, freebasing cocaine is okay. Um, the truth of the matter is Jesus clearly affirmed heterosexuality yes. In Genesis, uh, in Matthew 19, quoting Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And in so doing, you know, he is condemning any other lifestyle choice, whether it be homosexuality or any other lifestyle choice that contradicts the biblical standard, so the the art you're right. The argument that Jesus never specifically said anything about homosexuality is is a, is a vacuous,
1: mm-hmm. uh,
2: logically inconsistent argument.
1: Yes, thank you. Um, we before we got back on the air during the break, I was mentioning to you about this uh, bill in Virginia that Democrats are working on passing. They're trying to. I think they may have taken a little step back because the elections are coming up that would actually criminalize parents who will not affirm their young son or daughter, a minor, who wants to go down the road of hormones or sex change, you know, sex reassignment surgery, in quotes, right, reassignment. But this is what's happening when you reverse the biblical order of the authority of mom and dad, the authority of parents, which the Bible talks about. So that's very important, and it's being challenged in the school system, Andy. The school says these are our kids. Even Biden, some have used that language. So whose kids are they? So talk about that important issue that is a biblical issue that we can vote about.
2: Yeah, that's uh, fifth, uh, number five there on the list. It's parental authority over children. You go back to Deuteronomy 6, Verses 4 through 7, it's the Hebrew Shema, which means listen, mm-hmm. where God says in verse 7 You shall teach diligently to your sons, and you shall talk about them when you sit in your house, walk by the way, uh, lie down when you rise up. And in, in so doing, and this is 1,500 years before the time of Christ, God put parents in moral authority over their own children. You know, the the book of Proverbs um, 22, verse 6, I think it is, train up a child in the way he shall go, and in the end he will not depart from that path. Um, New Testament, you see the same principle in Ephesians 6, verse 4, fathers do not exasperate your children to wrath, but bring them up in the admonition and the nurture of the Lord. I mean, it's crystal clear that the moral upbringing of a child Mm -hmm. rests with the parents, and what's happening in our society is that very holy union between parents and children is being um, – they're trying to drive a wedge in that, yeah. in that relationship. And so you have the case in Virginia that you're speaking of, um, the case that I reference is the case in Florida, where the school system in Florida, the public school system, the compulsory public educational system in Florida, you know, essentially was transitioning a man's daughter without his awareness of it. Wow. And it got to the point where it was so bad, they were trying to convince her that she was really a him. It got so bad that she became suicidal. And only when she became suicidal uh, did the father become aware of what the school system was doing in terms of trying to change the values of his own child. Now, that's that's a direct attack on the Hebrew Shema, mm-hmm. what God says. It's a direct attack on a relationship that God himself has ordained in terms of the upbringing of children. Yes. And so if anybody runs for office, I want to know, are they going to respect the parent-child relationship, or do they view children as belonging to them? Yep rather than us, and they're going to try to jam into our children some kind of value system that's hostile to the one they're learning at home.
1: That's such a good point, Andy, to bring this up with those who are running for office. Uh, the parent-child, does the, do the parents have authority? And for Christian parents, the obligation to bring them up, them up in the discipline and instruction of God's Word. So next, we just have four minutes left uh, in this segment um, this next one, you can take a little bit more time with, because it, it might be potentially confusing if you go to Luke uh, 22. Go go ahead and share the next one.
2: Well, Jesus in Luke 22, verse 36, you know, specifically said to his disciples as he was sending them out, you know, if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and get a sword. You now, the sword is an instrument of death. And I don't think he was teaching there go out and convert people by the sword, you know, like Islam unfortunately teaches, because we don't, you know, we we believe that in volition, you present the gospel, and then whether somebody receives it or not is their choice. So why did he say get a sword? Well, obviously he said get a sword for purposes of self-defense. So the Bible right there, and other passages we could go to, promotes the idea of self-defense, and our Constitution, of course, has enshrined within it the Second Amendment. And according to Joseph Story, who wrote very early on in American history a very influential commentary on the Constitution, he says the Second Amendment is there as a moral check against runaway tyranny. In other words, it's the last um, power that the Constitution gives us to take a stand against runaway government. Mm. So we're living in a a culture in a society where they're constantly trying to disarm us, whether it's Beto O'Rourke out here in Texas or whoever. They keep saying they're going to take this category of weapon away, uh, this other category of weapon away. And any time there's any kind of shooting, public shooting, it's almost as if these people dance in the blood of the victims in order to promote this gun control agenda. And what they're trying to do is pass so many laws and restrictions regulating the use of firearms that the right eventually will become meaningless mm-hmm. and we will have nothing more than these kind of Barney Fife guns, you know, with with limited bullets in it. And so I'm wondering, when I'm voting for anybody for office, do they understand the Second Amendment or not? Because if they don't understand the Second Amendment, um, they're taking away the last vestige that we have really against tyranny, and they're really not understanding what Jesus himself said, that self-defense against aggression is justified.
1: Thank you, Andy. I have one follow-up question on this topic to ask when we come back. And then we're going to talk about national borders, sovereignty of nations, and support For Israel. We're talking with Dr. Andy Woods about such an important issue today, guys biblical voting. How do you vote? Biblical values? We're going through many of them right now. We've got a lot more coming up when we come back on Stand Up for the Truth.
0: Thank you for listening and sharing today's show via standupforthetruth.com slash podcast. Now, back to Stand Up for the Truth. Here's David Fiorazzo. So,
1: is having a national border, a border around your nation and enforcing those borders, is that a biblical issue? And is that something we vote about? But before we get to that, we've got to clarify one more thing from Luke uh, chapter 22. Uh, you know, Jesus said a couple of verses, what we talked about uh, that Andy quoted. Uh, He said, whoever has no sword, sell your cloak and buy one. But then a couple verses later, the disciples said, look, here are two swords. They're speaking to Jesus. And Jesus said to them, that's enough or it is enough. Could you explain that, please, Andy?
2: Well, you know, I guess I would just take that as uh, Peter and the disciples went above and beyond even what Jesus asked. And Jesus didn't say, well, you know, get rid of one of those (laughs) He said, okay, two is good. So he actually makes the point even more. Mm -hmm. Uh, Having a sword is great, but two is better. In other words, the Bible is not anti-self-defense, you know, having some sort of weapon to protect yourself at all. Um, Not only does it promote it, it it goes beyond.
1: So let's go to our southern border and talk about, (laughs) or our border period, um, Andy, fentanyl is coming across. We've got massive drugs. We've got um, the cartels, sex trafficking on steroids like we've never seen it before. And th- we seem to have a disconnect in our nation about the importance of protecting our borders, language, culture. But the safety of families and children, we're not even concerned, some people because they just want to keep the borders open, and you now they have a reason for that. But let's talk about how that is a biblical issue.
2: Well, some of the woke churches are basically saying taking in illegals, you know, is Christlike. In fact, when Obama a few years back pushed through executive amnesty, he started quoting the Bible, and he started quoting Exodus twenty-two verse twenty-one, which talks about you know be kind to the sojourner among you. You know, not understanding that that Hebrew word, sojourner, is, is speaking of someone sort of like Ruth, the Moabitess, who entered uh, the land of Israel where she said, your God will be my God, you know, your people will be my people. In other words, she wanted to assimilate into the existing culture. Hmm. She didn't come in, you know, in <clears throat> some kind of hostile manner. Uh, God actually said, keep the Ammonites and the Moabites out of the assembly. I think that's in Deuteronomy 23. But Ruth, you know, who basically was uh, wanting to play by the rules, we would call today that legal immigration as opposed to illegal immigration, that's who Exodus 22 verse 21 applies to. And I noticed that Obama, you know, when he read that verse, didn't give that background at Mm. all. But the truth of the matter is God created nations at the Tower of Babel, and you can't have a nation Unless you have borders. And if you deny a nation's ability to restrict people from entering, that would be like someone showing up to my house this evening and I'm forced to let them in when I've never vetted them. I have no idea who they are. And so we have this whole group of people, you know, coming illegally, not legally, which makes them criminals into our country. Many of them are OTMs other than Mexican, in other words, they come up from the Middle East, from Middle Eastern countries. Um, We have no idea uh, what their ideology is. We have no idea what their worldview is. Mm -hmm. Uh, You mentioned the fentanyl, fentanyl, if I'm pronouncing that right, issue. Uh, Everybody's all upset about COVID. Nobody's masked. Nobody's vaccinated. And um, the truth of the matter is, a country under God's design, because God created countries, and he can't have a country without borders, a country has a right to be able to um, determine who can come in and who can't. And that's, as much as people want to rip the Bible out of context to support the contrary, the Bible actually supports border enforcement. So when I vote for somebody, particularly here in Houston, where I'm very, you know, we're very near our southern border. Yes. I want to know, do they understand the biblical principle of border enforcement or not?
1: Yeah, that's important. And by the way, they shipped some uh, illegal a- aliens, some undocumented, whatever, however we call them, up to uh, Martha's Vineyard. And someone, the elites up there, right, the power elites that are wealthy, they, one of them actually said, hey, this isn't Texas isn't it it's just amazing the insult to people in Texas and New Mexico and even you know like San Diego and you know just let them pour across the southern border that, that's their problem. No, we are a nation. So I'd like that you quoted Act 1726 but we need to move on because of the sake of time and talk about um, Jeremiah 179 you use that in terms of um, what Reagan would have referred to as peace through strength. Could you explain that?
2: Well, you know, the the people around the world are evil because humanity is evil. And there's a lot of bad actors in our world that won't be deterred from evil activity through dialogue or good intentions. And the only thing they really understand is the threat of force. And so if I vote for someone for office, I I need to know whether they understand the concept of peace through strength. You know, that a large military, you know, a readily available military, mm-hmm. uh, you need that because it sends a message to the rest of the world that we mean business. And guess what? If the rest of the world understands that, we don't have to use our military. And so weakness creates war, the perception of it. Military strength, the perception of it, creates peace around the world. I mean, mm-hmm. it's a pretty simple strategy, a pretty simple policy. You know, take, for example, what we did in Afghanistan, how we took the military out first and the citizens out second. I mean, that makes no sense. In fact, we have Americans, I believe, still trapped behind enemy lines because of that bungling of that whole operation. Well, there was a guy watching that named Vladimir Putin, who subsequently rolled right on into ukraine and i believe putin sensed the weakness that we don't want to fight and we're too incompetent to fight we don't know what we're doing and he took advantage of the situation of american weakness i noticed that putin made that decision to go into ukraine not when trump was in office but he waited until biden was in office and so this is just an example where i believe the entire situation now with the Russia invasion of Ukraine, the war in Ukraine, that whole thing could have been avoided simply through the perception of strength, which mm-hmm. the Biden administration did not do.
1: That's right. Um, and we have left less than 10 minutes. so We have to move on. But I think the next one is kind of related in that you were just talking about geographically where Russia is and how they go to the Ukraine. And then obviously there's ways to go through you know, Turkey. But Israel is possibly in their line of fire, and the next one you have, the only one we have time for, is supporting the nation of Israel. And so walk us through that. I'm sure that's more near and dear to you since you were just there.
2: Sure, and that's, that's uh, the, the tenth in our, our, our list here of questions, but that's number ten. But God makes a very clear statement in Genesis 12, verse 3, concerning Israel. He, he basically says, I'm going to bless the world through Israel, And then a companion promise, because Satan, understanding that God would bless the world through Israel, wants to destroy Israel. And so God says, whoever blesses you, I will bless, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And that's the only foreign policy statement I can find, really, Hmm. in the whole Bible, where God specifically evaluates nations based on how they treat his chosen people – the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And as you go right through the Bible, you see world powers that mark their decline the moment they came against Israel. It's, it, it's a principle yep. that works yep. like clockwork, whether it's uh, Egypt, uh, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, you know, all world powers. And the moment they came against Israel is the moment they began to decline you know, as a world power, you think of Adolf Hitler mm. and what he did to the Jews uh, in terms of the Holocaust. I mean, the Third Reich, the Aryan race was supposed to last a thousand years. You know, it went rapidly into decline. Uh, rapidly, mm. uh, World War II, and rightfully so. And you know, it's 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 a, it's a truth that I don't see any statute of limitations on. In other words, this is an immutable, unchangeable principle. And if it applies to every other world power, it applies to the United States of America. The mistake most world powers make is they think this principle doesn't apply to them. But I'm here to tell you, as a Bible reader, it applies across the board. Yep. And the moment you start to carve up Israel through the so-called two-state solution, and you demand that Israel give what's called the... Um, West Bank, better called you know Samaria and Judea, back to the international community, thereby weakening Israel's ability to defend itself. The moment you start playing games like that, pressuring Israel um, you know to give up land in exchange for the promise of peace or in exchange for loan guarantees or whatever is the moment civilizations that push that start to die. And I honestly believe Mm -hmm. that's one of the reasons why the United States is currently in decline, because we are really not the friend of Israel that we once were Mm. uh, under the Biden administration. So, you know, I'm not going to vote for anybody, for any office. I don't care if they're running for dog catcher if they don't have a clear understanding of Israel.
1: Amen, brother. Um, I really appreciate this. And I hope uh, if you're listening right now that you will not only take this to heart, but share this information with brothers and sisters in Christ, because we need to understand we hear vote your biblical values and we say yay and we cheer and we say amen. But we need to know what they are, how to explain them. And I just want to review what we've gone through. Uh, the earth experiencing cyclical patterns that, in other words, against climate change, the indoctrination. Um, also, limitations upon government, limited government, um, legal protection for unborn babies, the right to life. We talked about marriage between one man and one woman as the societal standard. We talked about parental authority over children, the right to keep and bear arms, self-defense, favoring the enforceability of our national borders. That's a biblical issue, and there are more scriptures than what we had time to talk about. National sovereignty above global governance the pursuit of peace through strength, and we just wrapped up with supporting Israel, the nation of Israel. So many important biblical values. These are not political issues. And Pastor Andy, if you want to just take another minute or two and talk about that, that the media would have people think that murdering life in mothers' wombs is a political issue. And you can go on down the list that we just went through. These are, quote, political issues, so Christians shouldn't be as concerned. So please speak to that for a moment.
2: Well, the Bible is more than a book about how to get to heaven, as important as that subject is. It's a book that reveals a comprehensive worldview. It speaks with equal authority to all of these issues. I think the one we didn't quite get to was number eight, the national sovereignty versus global governance. I mean, should we be governed by a global you know, cabal, or should we be governed by our elected representatives? That's one of the great battles right now in our society with mm-hmm. uh, the World Economic Forum and yeah. Klaus Schwab saying, you know, you'll own nothing and like it. Well, he's making dictates on us, you know, through a global sort of uh, form of government. We didn't vote for any of that. And so you'll even find that as a biblical issue. That's why God scattered the... Uh, uh, builders at the Tower of Babel by confounding the language, and God created individual nation-states. He doesn't want humanity ordered by global governance, but rather by individual nation-states. So all of these things Mm. um, are biblical issues. It's not a Republican or Democrat issue. It's not right or left. It's Bible or non-Bible. And that's how we need to start thinking, you know, as Christians, particularly in this midterm election. You know, they always say this election cycle is the most important one in American history. Uh, the problem is this time, I think it really is. <laughs> <laughs> so if you want to save this republic, you better get out and mm. vote Bible.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for this. We will also connect uh, people through our blog to your pastor's point of view, where you talk about voting biblically and interviewed uh, Dr. Teague. Um, Andy, thank you so much. People, again, you can go to uh, org for more information. Check out his books, phenomenal books as well. Uh, God bless you, brother. Thanks for your time today.
2: Hey, great to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: You're welcome. Well, next week, friends, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, we have our biannual fundraiser where we raise money for the next six months of this ministry. Costs, operations, all the expenses that we go through, including electricity, the building, streaming online, computers, and other things. But Monday, we've got J.B. Hickson with us, and he's got part two, volume two of The Spirit of the Antichrist. The book is out. Actually, I think Monday is the day it's released, and he decided to come on our show first. We're blessed by that, so J.B. Hickson on Monday. Uh, Thank you guys again for sharing the podcast and for, of course, praying for this ministry. And if you're able to donate financially at StandUpForTheTruth.com. God bless you, and as always, keep speaking the truth about things that matter.